I am joined by Zed Francis, Chief Investment Officer of Convexitas. Zed, great to have you here. Uh, it's, an inter- it's an interesting time. You're a rates guy. You have a background in rates, but as the name of your company might suggest, uh, your, your firm focuses on volat- volatility, so volatility you know, options in, in equities as well as rates. But you have you have a background in rates, and, and uh, interest rates has been at the absolute sort of eye of the storm uh, of, of what's been going on this this year. And you had a piece out uh, a while ago called "Rates Free Risk: uh, Duration, Duration Everywhere." Basically, how interest rates uh, is the greatest risk ever, and that was actually wow, that was published in February of 2021. So nearly going on two years, and that, that was very prescient. So tell us why you thought that duration was the, the sort of biggest risk to the market and, and walk through your thinking. It's not that complicated. Um, you know, what we've had over the last 12 plus years, and it, it was happening beforehand, but like really accelerated the last 12 plus years, is the financialization of everything, which essentially means you're trying to squeeze out every bit of potential equity compensation by adding leverage wherever you can. And the baseline for leverage is going to be treasuries. It's treasuries plus a spread, but treasuries is ultimately the main driver of what is going to allow you to finance uh, something, whatever asset class, to go ahead and squeeze more and more value into the equity portion of that investment. And so ultimately what that means is all investments are gonna have pretty significant reflexivity or correlation to the level of interest rates. (laughs) Just walk us through that, Zed, because a lot of times sort of when people, when when I sort of thought I understood it, I said, okay, interest rates going up, that's bad for valuations because stocks are uh, like the, the valuations of future cash flows and the future is worth less when interest rates are higher. But I was stymied by the fact that actually stocks tend to rise often, sometimes when interest rates rise, but that's just because the economy is strong. So people have more money, people are spending more money, earnings are going up, people are putting that money into stocks. Um, So it's a little bit complicated. But this year, the narrative has been very simple. Interest rates up, stocks down. Walk us through how you you think that, that worked. So, I mean, ultimately, I actually think you're correct. I think the the best asset class to hold when interest rates are rising are equities. Now, it might be the best of you know a bunch of bad choices, <laughs> but ultimately I do think that they're actually the best asset class of everything you could possibly have simply because their cash flows going on you know into the future, as you said, have a variability to them where a lot of other investments, those cash flows are somewhat fixed. And so, you know, what we've experienced round one, I think is because it's, you know, been shocking to most people, the the move is that revaluation of equities from a multiple perspective. But, you know, I'm I'm not saying equities are necessarily cheap, expensive, whatever here. But if we continue on this path of reasonably high inflation, driving potentially higher rates, equities are likely to be the best place to sit because their future earnings are probably also increasing somewhat close to inflation. So, you know, cash flows from the equity ownership are going up. Yes, they're being discounted at a higher, higher rate, bringing the present value down. But at least the there's some increasing future cash flows because they're potentially earning more due to higher inflation. Other investments are less likely to be the case. <laughs> so if you have some sort of, you know, we'll call it, you know, securitized fixed income investment, again, it's it's 
fixed income, you know the distributions that you're going to be receiving sans any defaults. Um, and you're just discounting those back to today using some leverage to dial up those returns. Again, the, the known cash flows in the future are, are fixed. That's problematic if, if, if inflation's higher and, and rates are higher. Uh, real estate, kind of similar. I mean, real estate, ultimately, you have some flexibility to go ahead and increase rents and increase your cash flows. But if you think like commercial leases are five plus years, so the reflexivity is not necessarily automatic. <laughs> it takes a little while for them to go ahead and increase rates. And even in the you know residential kind of space, if, if, if you have any sort of you know residential real estate multifamily in, investments, they're, they're not happy right now. <laughs> um, a lot of that is they got pulled down in 2020, 2021 in terms of, you know, what they could actually ask for for rents. And they're going through the 12, 18, 24 month cycle to go ahead and resize those rents to the current marketplace. But there's a delay there. Right. And, and, and so even even, you know, real estate, I think, has problems in, in a inflationary environment um, when you at this starting place of zero rates. <laughs> if you're going like, you know, the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, going from 8% to 12%, real estate, in theory, might have been a very good investment simply because, hey, it's a hard asset that's experiencing, you know, some of the benefits of the rest of the world devaluing from an inflationary perspective. But when real estate was, you know, hyper financialized, meaning like, you know, cap rates at three and a half percent, we're putting as much leverage. That's how we're creating a bunch of money is we think we can get distributions at six percent. We can borrow at three and a half and you lever it up six, seven times. That's really bad when you go from zero to five percent in interest rates. <laughs> right. So when interest rates go from eight to twelve percent, which means that cap rates or the sort of the valuation of real estate goes from let's say ten percent to fifteen percent, that's not as bad. You're saying for two reasons. One is just the math, which you know you can explain. I can't explain it. And two is that as it's going up, as the valuation is going down, you're still getting that ten percent. Whereas if if you bought a zero coupon bond, uh, you were getting zero. As as the bond price was falling, so so yeah, a lot more interest rate sensitive when rates start from a very low base, which is exactly what we what we had. Right. I mean, like as simple as if you had like a, a you know thirty year standard treasury, and if the interest rate on that treasury was zero, the duration on that is going to be high twenties. You know, you move the interest rate on thirty year treasury up to three percent, the duration on that is like twenty one. You move it up to where it is today, it's already down to fifteen. So Every you know one percent change in interest rates back when it was zero created almost a thirty you know point move in the dollar price of the bond, and that's already down to fifteen. You've already cut the amount of movement per one hundred you know basis points, one percent move in that thirty year treasury in half, and essentially that that move that we've experienced. So it just becomes less and less sensitive because your duration becomes shorter and shorter as rates become higher and higher. Um, so that's why it's you know problematic going from zero to five, just, you know, round numbers and five to 10 less so and 10 to God forbid, 15, <laughs> even less so. Um, but yeah, I mean, going from zero to five is uh, quite the wake up call. <laughs> yeah, so, so let me just say a few things, uh, summarize how, how I think it and, and tell me if I, I miss anything. So all assets have a duration exposure, exposure to interest rates going up or down. And most assets are less valuable when interest rates rise. Historically, that's been shattered by the fact that Typically, when interest rates rise, earnings rise as well. So sometimes you see the stock markets go up. But in this case, that has not been the case. The economy has slowed 
as interest rates uh, have, have risen because central banks are tightening into a slowdown. So it's kind of like the, the worst of all, of all worlds uh, for, for a lot of asset classes. I mean, earn, earnings are still up, what, the last, uh, I mean, we're not all the way through Q3, but like kind of like trafficking, like, you know, five and a half-ish percent. So they're still going up. Earnings are still going up. And that's kind of why I would say that, you know, equities are likely the least bad choice if we continue on this path. Simply because, and, and frankly, that's an underperformance if you think about it. You're like, okay, if inflation's 8%, top line should be growing 8%. There should be, you know, some uh, benefits for you running an efficient company that earnings don't go up 8%. They should go up more like 12%, right? You know, there should be some scale associated with the top line growing at that speed. And they're only up five and a half, you know, kind of approximately thus far. So, you know, companies aren't doing as well as you'd expect with a top line growth of, of 8%, right. but it's still a positive number. It's still growth. And frankly, it's still above the quote unquote risk-free rate. So it, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, this is horrific for equities yet. <laughs> Fair, but the rate, so, so I'm not someone who worships at the altar of like rates. So, Oh, uh, you know, it used to be 20% increase and now it's only 10% increase. So that's bearish. Like a 10% increase is still good. But just looking at the second derivative, like, you know, earnings grew, what, like 30% in 2021, and now they're growing at 5%. And a, a lot yeah. of that is energy. If you take out, you know, oil stocks, which are doing extraordinarily well financially, then it's pretty close to zero. So you're going from like 30% to zero. So what's next? I mean, you know, the, the Fed is not, tight, uh, the Fed is not, um, you know, going to ease anytime soon. So the, the interest rate pressures on the interest rate sector, uh, uh, housing, auto market, the economy is looking, not looking great. That's what I'm saying. No, don't, do not disagree with you. I'm just in the, uh, you know, discounting a future Castro's conversation, uh, just saying if this were to take place for, you know, five years where inflation is a lot higher than people think, equities are likely the least bad choice purely because their cash flows are variable rather than fixed. <laughs> yep, I totally agree. And um, well, the 10-year treasury is at like 4%. The S&P 500 PE is, is less than 20, but let's just say it's 20. Uh, a PE of 20 is like earning 5% a year. So that's like a getting a 5%. So equities are paying more than 5%. Not that you're getting that in terms of the dividend, but they're, they're reinvesting that. So yeah, equities are fundamentally a, a better long-term investment than, than bonds, but that's because they're riskier. And I think the fun one is privates because I think people kind of ignore privates a little bit because they don't get marked every single day. So you can, you know, you can ignore them from that standpoint. But for this conversation is most private investments have exceedingly long duration to them. Um, so, you know, VC super simple, right? You're like, all right, I give you some money today. I expect you to lose a bunch of money for one, three, five years. But guess what? In your 20, like tons of free cash flow, right? right. So you're like, you have, it is you have like, an exit. Is yeah, yo, I'm going to give you money, Zed, your VC, and uh, you're going to invest it in 20 money losing companies that are startups, you know, t technology startups, typically almost by definition, money losing what 19 of them are going to be nothings. One of them is going to IPO and we're going to have a big fat payday and you're going to get that money in 10 years. So that's right. ultimately by its very nature, extremely long duration. Exactly. Like the, the real key is that specific company you're valuing, even when it IPOs probably based on cash flows that are pretty far out in the future. So it's like, the ultimate long duration asset. Negative cash flows today with really big cash flows way out in the future. That is the definition of extremely long duration. So even if the companies haven't fundamentally changed, they should just have a lot less value today 
because, you know, again, rates have moved a heck of a lot. Um, when you go to the PE space, it's more like financialization, like in terms of duration hitting you, but essentially like PE is borrowing a bunch of money today to buy a long duration asset. So it's a carry trade plus <laughs> a duration exposure. And neither of those have been good in this movement of a curve flattening in interest rates and interest rates obviously selling off. So you're it's costing a lot more money to borrow today <laughs> and your your asset that you purchased that is a long duration asset is also being discounted at a much higher rate. So it's the double whammy of your cost of financing is up and the asset that you purchase is probably worth less. Right. And a lot of private equity, correct me if I'm wrong, is funded with relatively short term debt or, or floating rate debt. Like it's not, you know, Amazon a year and a half ago, they took out a 40 year bond. Yeah. which they got at like 95 basis points over treasuries. An extraordinary good deal that they're, they're actually benefiting from from duration risk there. In private equity, it's, it's the total opposite of that. It's like you know a year ter- a term loan that's uh, LIBOR plus 300 basis points or, or SOFR you know, plus 300 basis points. So as interest rates rise, they're basically, you know, it's kind of like an adjustable mortgage. They're not locking in their rates. Um, and they're using that. So they're using their uh, short-term borrowing to fund longer-term assets, which does not do typically well when interest rates rise. Yeah, super traditional carry trade, which works, you know, really well nine out of 10 years and the 10th year tends to not be very fun. <laughs> yeah, and Zed, so you've had a lot of price discovery in the stock market because people can buy, you know, every single day, except for weekends. It's not like crypto. <laughs> um, but in private equity and venture capital, it's a lot more opaque. If I want to withdraw my money, I have to, you know, do 90 days. I, 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 you know, if I withdraw my money from you, how do you even give me the money if it's invested in these money losing companies? It's not even clear to me. So the, the stated losses, if we were to look at a chart of venture capital, uh, for example, I mean, I, I heard Kathy Wood recently say that venture capital valuations are down less than in the public market. And she was saying, oh, the public market's way overblown. These assets are, are way too, too down. And like private markets are the truth. Um, Whatever you think about about like which one is is the true valuation, she's absolutely right that the the spread you haven't seen this the sort of sell off as, as vicious uh, in the private markets as you have in the public markets. Explain what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think either side like is the truth. I don't think there's like you know a known valuation for anything. Everybody is doing their best guess and coming up with you know a, a, a market based pricing, and that's the difference. Is you know most other assets to have that truly daily market based pricing, getting to some sort of clearing value where there's a buyer and seller and they meet, and that's the price for that point in time. Where again, the private markets is not necessarily the case. So. You know, there's a handful of firms out there that will participate in liquidations of locked up private assets. So say, you know, all right, you're in a you know some sort of private equity fund and they you know called your capital and in theory, you know, you're locked up for five years where you know getting some distribution and then there might be a trail where you're getting future distribution, so on and so forth. But you're like, I can't actually, you know, go sell it somewhere naturally or simply, but there are firms that will go ahead and, and basically make markets and secondary private uh, investments, whether it's a, a, you know, a private equity fund or a single investment and so on and so forth. And, and the main ones that really do it are, are Goldman's 
pretty big in it. Like JP will do it too. And then obviously Blackstone. Blackstone has, you know, all like basically fund of funds, like for lack of a better word, like, hey, we, we've raised this fund for PE investment. And we rather than, you know, buying companies, we think it's actually better to buy things in the secondary, i.e. people who want to liquidate their investment and we'll just buy that instead because we think it's actually more interesting. That hasn't really come to like, you know, aggressive fruition yet. There hasn't been a lot of trading necessarily happening there. Um, but when people need some liquidity and they say, all right, like, I don't know if I necessarily want to sell my public market stuff down, you know, whatever, I guess only 18% or something like that there. But, you know, I don't want to necessarily sell that. I want to look at my private's portfolio to get some liquidity. They're going to call those venues and those venues will make them some sort of bid. And as soon as somebody says, you know what, like, I think that's good enough. I'll take that. I'll take whatever it is, 50, 60, 80 cents an hour. I don't know. But wherever it is, that will start the repricing because then all of a sudden you'll have a chunky trade, you know, uh, a, a giant pension that has 50 billion in private sells 5 billion to Goldman. And this is what those holdings are. And that's going to force a little bit of a re-rack <laughs> in, in the space more broadly. So we haven't seen it yet, but there is a mechanism for it to happen. And that's probably when you see more alignment with, you know, private markets and, you know, public markets. <laughs> I should have explained this earlier, but duration is a concept that refers to how far you're, you're going to get, get your cash back. And that's sort of the concept, but it's also a very mathematical formula for just how much money you're going to gain or lose if interest rates go up by, by X or Y amount. Which assets have short duration and have weathered the storm uh, better than, than others? For example, you know, uh, unprofitable technology stocks, uh, a 30-year bond, both of those have long duration. You're not going to get your cash flows for a long time, and they've you know, you know, suffered the most this year. What do you think of the asset classes, and you, know, you can pick pick your, your choice, uh, that have done much better? And and to what extent do you attribute it to, oh, it's because they have shorter duration? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think probably the simplest way to refer to it is, like, sectors that tend to be short duration. And sectors that tend to be short duration are kind of like, you know, financials, commodity-type players. Like, and anybody that's basically like, I, you know, do some R&D or CapEx, and then in three years, I expect to get most of my money back. <laughs> like, that is a short duration type of company and or sector. So, yes, and on the commodity side, commodities have also gone up. So that's, been, yeah. you know, helpful along with it being a short duration sector. But like financials, like, you know. Because there hasn't been a, a, a expectation of massive defaults, like that would be a different story for the financial sector. But at this point, everybody's like, well, you know, we're kind of just bumbling along. It's not great, but it's not terrible. And we don't see lots of defaults and they haven't really massively increased their loan reserves yet or anything because they're not nearly seeing those defaults. All right. So what, what are they worth? And you're like, well, they're, they're a high free cash flow today type of business. Basically, they're you know, their, their R&D is people, <laughs> which is, you know, today money like out the door and we get, you know, r returns from that money over the next one to three years and pretty front loaded. It's mostly, you know, servicing fees. Um, so it's like, it, it's a really low duration sector. And so that's been very beneficial to it. And, and an odd one that it, you got to go company by company to be frank would, would be utilities, utilities and theory are, are kind of a shorter duration sector, 
but there's been a lot of, we'll just call it financialization of that sector, i.e. they've borrowed a heck of a lot of money to increase returns for the equity holders and dividends and so on and so forth. So they, they, the fundamentals of the business are short duration, but the company construction themselves is uh, not exactly the case. <laughs> Let's say you know I have a real estate company and I'm borrowing money. So I lose money when interest rates go up because I have to pay more in borrowing costs. I, but I say, oh, Zed, don't worry about it. Like it's it's hedged. I've it's hedged. I've, I've entered a, a a fixed rate. I've entered a, a swaption. It's all good. Don't worry about it. But it's like someone who's on the other side of that. They have to now endure that loss. You can't negate the losses imposed on the financial system by central banks and by raising rates. You can only transfer them. So who sort of gets left stuck with the bag with all of this duration risk? Because I mean, there's there's an enormous amount of just huge. The asset class of two year Treasury notes is enormous and. You know, people have lost, oh, I don't know, 8% on that money, which they normally think of like as kind of cash-like. Maybe they shouldn't because they've been, they've been used to a you know, zero interest rate volatility world but or close to zero. Uh, but yeah, I mean, who, who bears these losses? So, I mean, like, uh, go back to the first thing you said. So think about it. If, 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 if a traditional bank procedure essentially makes them short duration, that means they're very happy to take the other side of that. There's like a natural hedge in their portfolio. So if somebody has, you know, fixed and they, you know, floating and they want to make it fixed. And so they're going to enter that swap to go ahead and go from a, you know, a, a, the duration exposure to no duration exposure on their side. The banks are just sitting on the other side of that transaction. Like, perfect. Like that gets us to hedge. So that that's a simple environment to be frank. That gets everybody to like neutral because they're just on the other side of the transactions on basically both sides. Uh, but the ultimate holders of duration are basically any asset holders. Like again, like all assets have some component <laughs> of duration to them, whether it's a de minimis or a, a significant amount of duration, but all assets have some portion of duration to them. And so anybody that holds assets is, is long duration to some aspect. And, you know, people that think that like, I, I own a bunch of equities, like I don't own any duration. You're like, no, 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 you definitely do. <laughs> like it, 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 it doesn't, you know, mark to market exactly what rates are doing every single day. And it's not, you know, a perfect bond math calculation, like you wouldn't fixed income, but you definitely do. You definitely own some, some duration. We can argue about how much, um, but you definitely own some duration. So essentially anybody that holds assets is long duration. And that's why in a, in a year that we've experienced so far with a significant move in, in interest rates that all assets pretty much anywhere have gone down. And it's a duration component of all those assets that are the main driver of those increased correlations and why everything's having an issue. <laughs> and Zed, to what degree uh, were derivatives sort of uh, popularized over the past decade that relied upon ultra low interest rates that would not go higher and really juice as much yield saying, oh, I'm only getting you know 90 basis points, but I can eke out a few extra basis points if I enter this complicated derivative that makes money no matter what. I mean, unless the Fed hikes by four basis, 400 basis points in a year, but I mean, that never happens, you know? I mean, like, I know you, you, you followed uh, the UK guilt crisis in late September of this year where uh, pension funds who had entered into liability-driven investment schemes uh, were basically forced to sell their, their bonds at a fire sale prices in order to make good on, the, on the, those derivatives. Uh, to what extent do you see those derivatives worldwide, not just in the UK. And, and do, what, you know, what, what are, how are you sort of handicapping the odds of the bond market, quote, breaking like it, end, uh, like it broke in the UK guilt market in late September? 
Yeah, so those are actually two very, very different things. So, you know, the, the amount of product that's been created over the last decade that have embedded options of some variety in them has, has grown significantly. And that's as simple as everybody wants yield of some variety. It was really hard to access yield from traditional methods, buying treasuries, buying credit, so on and so forth. So, of course, there's going to be a creation of something that suffices that need from the marketplace. And the easiest way to generate something that like mimics the concept of yield is embed selling options into it somewhere. Now, most of that product is sitting in, you know, private bank universe um, that they're selling to institutions, that they're selling to high net worth individuals, so on and so forth. But it's mostly in the, the private bank world via some sort of structured note or something that looks like a structured note. In that product, they're almost always selling options in riskier assets because those options are more valuable. You know, it, if you were selling options in treasury space, it'd be difficult to like, hey, you know, here's a structured note that generates, you know, three and a half percent over treasuries. It's hard to market, <laughs> especially if you're trying to get a 2% fee or something like that in there. So in general, they're selling options in the equity space because equities in general have higher volatility and thus the options associated with them are higher. And you can get some like, you know, funkier options. You're not just selling a put or a call. It's a knock in a knockout yeah. and so on and so forth. We don't, like Maybe there's some hybrids, the, the if-thens, like, you know, the equity market has to be lower and rates have to be here. You know, anytime you add complexity, then obviously the value of that option, you know, likely goes up and thus you generate more effective yield in that structured product. But the point there is most of that space is definitely equity oriented just because people want to sell a structured note that have a headline yield of, seven, eight, nine, twelve percent, because that's an easier marketing decision. And you need to have riskier assets that are underliers to the options that are embedded in those notes to get those big headline yields. So that definitely has a significant effect on, on equity option markets. Like it's mostly in the the long end, you know, meaning you know year plus type stuff. Like it, it definitely has effect mostly in index rather than single names um but it definitely has an effect like because you know uh, that's not exactly the most liquid part of the curve and if there's a lot of notes that are doing things not based on fair implied volatility they're doing things based on i want to create a note hedge it and then sell another note um it, it definitely um, distorts fair value <laughs> to to some extent um, it's not like we haven't seen this before, though. It's like, you know, Japan had low rates forever, so they created a pretty significant structured product market, which was selling volatility and equities and embedding them in notes. Then Korea, then a little bit in, in Europe, and then, you know, here. <laughs> um, so low, low rates cause people to reach for certain things, and they create products to service those, those needs. Um, the, the UK pension crisis is a, a completely different story. <laughs> um, like quick synopsis, I guess, and then the UK pension prices without spending too much flavor time because I feel like a lot of people have talked about it. Um, but essentially LDI, liability driven investment, you're just trying to match your assets to your liabilities. And what that means is your liabilities are, are cash flows are going to go out every single year to retirees. And you want your assets to be able to withstand all those payments, whether it's from distributions or just, you know, selling off capital base over time. And again, like it's actually really, really easy bond math. You, you, you basically know what the distributions you need to make are like there's a little variability like longevity oh shoot people are living longer and extends the duration of things but like ultimately your actuaries 
telling you these are the cash flows you need to pay. And that's pretty much what everybody expects and how they're modeling their portfolio against it. In the UK, the discount rate, meaning like you got all those cash flows and what are you using to discount it back to today, is, is a combination of gilts, i.e. treasuries, and linkers, i.e. tips. So it's a portion of it is just, you know, whatever essentially the UK version of a treasury is, plus a little bit of an inflation piece. So it's very vanilla and very vanilla to go ahead and hedge that, you know, super liquid, available products. It should be pretty easy to buy an asset portfolio that matches liabilities. And, and the other piece is UK pensions are pretty much fully funded. So if you had a $10 billion of liability or pounds of liabilities, most of them had 10 billion pounds of assets. So it's like, you don't have that weird situation of, hey, we're, we're chasing for something because we have way too little money. All right, Dan, I just got to jump in there. So uh, duration, you, ha- you can have it on the liability side. So if you have a lot of sort of aging retirees who need money when they retire, you can forecast that. And that's basically future cash flows in reverse, but there's cash outflows. So you need cash inflows to match that at the specific time horizon. So was the UK pension system, were they, did they not have enough duration or did they have too much and they needed to hedge it back just to be clear? No, their, their duration was probably perfectly matched to be honest, like their liabilities and their assets had the exact same amount of duration. But because of LDI, it wasn't matched before. And then they did LDI and they entered into these derivative contracts to extend their duration. And now they're matched, Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. right. And so LEI took off in, in the UK about 20 years ago, and it's really regulatorily driven. Basically, the the amount of, of insurance premiums, for lack of a better word, that a pension would have to pay for being underfunded and or taking market risk, was they increased them a bunch. So basically, it's like, we don't want you using your pension to swing for the fences which a lot of people did in the 80s and 90s, because yeah. essentially if you became way overfunded, then the corporate could pull money out of the pension and put it into earnings. <laughs> and they're like, we're done with this. We want the pension to just be there. And, yeah. and so the best way to do this is basically say, if you're underfunded, you're going to have to pay into the insurance premium pool. U.S. is called PPGC, which is essentially the Fed takes over defaulted corporates and absorbs the pension. And you pay insurance premiums essentially into that to make sure there's enough money as a collective. Um, but essentially, the U.K. jacked up those insurance premiums to basically convince corporations to be like, don't swing for the fences. Just lock this down and make sure you can pay it. Um, where the problem came from, because everything I'm describing is like, this is all fine. Everything's great. Yeah, like, why, why, why did we have a problem? The reason we had a problem in the UK, which makes it very, very different, to be honest, from, from the US, the main reason is UK pension plans are still open. US pension plans, for the most part, are closed. What does that mean? New employees in the UK get a pension. <laughs> in the US, that is a rarity. We've shifted over to DC defined contribution plans, you know, 401ks okay. and things along those, those lines. And so our pension plans as a whole are legacy. Like it's you're, you're paying off, you know, the people that were, you know, 40, 30, 20 years ago, current employees are on a DC plan, which means our duration is shorter because <laughs> you don't have new people, young people getting involved in, in the plan and they're smaller and shrinking, <laughs> right. um, but they're closed. And, and so when you, when you want to call it a day, you actually can call it a day. There's no new people coming in. We can, you know, take our liabilities and assets, call it a day. In fact, it's you know, most U S plans, these, you know, not most, but like they're starting to do PRT, which is pension risk transfer, which is basically you just sell the whole thing to an insurance company. You're done with it. 
when your plan is open, you can't do that. There's new people. There's new people every day. Every time you hire somebody up, oh, that's another, you know, 50 year pension plan person because you hired a 22 year old, right? Um, so when you're open, you can still lock down, you know, vast majority of the risk, but it can teach some bad behaviors. And what I mean by that is, all right, if, if again, we'll just use a simple dollar. If you had if a hundred dollars of pounds of liabilities, discounted to today and you have a hundred pounds of assets you're like everything's all good but you know you're going to hire more people so what you do is you want to reach just a little bit with your assets ah. you're like you're like i i could just totally lock this out i could buy gilts and linkers again you know basically tips and treasuries and call it a day but every time i hire somebody then i would have to contribute more money to the plan because they're a new liability they're a new person in the pension I'd rather just have the pension pay for that itself. So rather than just owning, you know, again, uh, gilts and linkers, essentially treasuries and tips, they reached a little bit. And they, you know, these guys don't reach like, oh, I'm going to buy equities. It's not like crazy risky stuff. It's like, at first, it's like, I'm going to buy a little bit of credit. Like, not a ton, but like, rather than just buying gilts, I'm going to buy some credit. And at first, they just bought credit, like in the UK, no currency risk, all that kind of stuff. They're like, ah, UK credit market's kind of small. It's, you know, not really earning as much as the US. Let's go, let's buy US credit. Like, it's still going to be, you know, a plus, you know, stuff like we're not buying like high yield. It's I, IG US credit. And I'm willing to like hedge the currency risk. And like I get that little like 30 basis points, 0.3 percent yeah. more. And that's all I need to like make the machine work and not have to fund it for new people. And then, you know, you know why not high yield? I mean, we're so close. We're already at triple B. I mean, why not go to. They, had, they never made fun. it to that. They never made it to that. But what they did make it to was high grade privates. And they started investing quite significantly in, you know, essentially investment grade level private investments. You know, your, you know, your parking lot down the road, infrastructure stuff, or like uh, gone down that path. Highly illiquid and stuff. That, you can't sell it. You can't right. sell it. Yeah, that like the rub. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you if you're still fully funded, your assets and liabilities match. That's all good and fine. You're doing your little reach, but when you need access to those assets to go ahead and collateralize. You know, everything that you did to go ahead and make those assets and liabilities match, and you have dramatic movements and both the assets and liabilities are moving exactly the same, but your assets aren't totally accessible. You know, you took 50% of them and put it in a place you can't access immediately. That is the problem. And so that little reach uh, for that, you know, it's, it's every problem, right? You're like, hey, there's no risk in this. Let's yeah. reach for just like a little bit more. And that's what creates the problems. That was the issue is the, the reach that they did eventually drifted itself down an illiquid path. And when they needed essentially access to that capital, again, their assets and liabilities were doing what they're doing. They're just both down 40%. But we need access to those assets to go ahead and keep collateralizing what we're doing. They got rid of the access. They put the capital in something illiquid. Okay. But what was causing the collateral call in the first place? So they had to put up more margin. Both assets and liabilities were down a ton. You know, rates sold off a ton. So their assets are down 20%. Liabilities also down 20%. So like, Forgive me, Zed, and forgive me for the audience, but why were the liabilities down? The assets make sense. Why are the liabilities Because down? the discount rate went up big, right? Oh. So it's like your your assets and your liabilities have the exact same discount rate, right? And so when your assets went down 20%, your liabilities also went down 20%. But what ends up happening is you, you actually need to continue to support the position that you have in the asset side, which means you need 
collateral to support that position, but you funnel a handful of your collateral into something illiquid that you cannot post at the exchange to maintain your positioning. And the position so, you're talking about is essentially interest rate options or interest rate derivatives? Yeah, it's interest rate swaps, but again, it's just gilts. It's like, you know, they just own gilts, whether it was in cash or synthetic or both, but, you know, all of them are both, the, to be honest. And if, if they were only in, in gilts and linkers, again, treasuries and tips, and then had, you know, additional, uh, you know, swaps on gilts to get the duration to match, there'd be no problems. Like, everything's moving in sync. You have tons of collateral, no problems. As soon as you started selling some of your cash gilts and buying some other things to reach for that like little bit of additional yield, that's where the problem started, eventually ending up all the way in a really illiquid holding. And then when both the assets and liabilities fell 40%, you're like, oh shoot, like I had, you know, 50% of my assets in a liquids. Now I only have 10% in liquids. 10% in liquids isn't enough collateral to support the position that I have on. I now have an issue. And so that, that's why we saw, you know, those last kind of like 10 days of September, UK pensions causing stress globally because at first they sold UK IG credit, then they sold US <laughs> IG credit, obviously putting pressure on here. And then they had a call up, you know, the Blackstones of the world and said, all right, we're auctioning off these parking lots in Germany, <laughs> you want them? And Blackstone says, yes, I would love to have them. We have a lot of, you know, uncommitted capital that we can call at any point in time. We need about a week. We need about a week to go ahead and make sure that parking lot exists. They send some 22-year-old <laughs> over there. They put it in their model of comps and they're like, all right, we think the fair value of that is, you know, 97 cents in the dollar. We'll bid you 92 cents in the dollar. And they're like, perfect, you're done. It was there, and but they needed the bridge that the Bank of England effectively gave them. They're like, we have good assets. Ah. We have a buyer of these assets. The buyer just won't buy them before the market opens tomorrow. <laughs> it takes a little bit of time. Seven days is not good enough. Buy it. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, what do you need? And they're like, two weeks should be enough. <laughs> and they're like, okay, you better sell that stuff because we're doing it for two weeks. And sure enough, they liquidated what they needed to in those two weeks. And the you know, systemic effects of risk assets across the globe stopped <laughs> once that bridge uh, was was achieved and they liquidated those illiquids that they needed to. But that's kind of like the waterfall. It's always like when you do the little reach for additional yield and you're like, I'm a long-term investor. I can put it in the drawer. This is no big deal. You're like, well, you better make sure you can actually keep it in the drawer. Like you, you, you can't ever have that situation where you need to access it. And this, in their models, they're like, we didn't have a 300 basis point in the long end of the gilt curve, you know, in a year in the model. <laughs> and, and so we thought we had enough liquidity and could keep things in the drawer, but we didn't. And so we had to sell our liquids and selling liquids you can't do instantaneously. It takes a little bit of time. <laughs> wow. I feel like I understand that on a higher level than I did before. So th thank you, Zed. And hopefully the audience <laughs> listening uh, got a lot of out of that because I, I definitely did. Zed, let's move a little bit to the world of equities. You said, okay, bonds don't move that much. So the interest rate products, interest rate derivatives that were being bought and sold, they didn't give as much juice, nearly as much juice as equities because you know equities have a vol of, well, I don't know, 20, 20, 30, in some cases 80. Uh, but uh, 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 bonds is, is much, much less. So stocks have sold off, as everyone knows. Uh, U.S. stocks, 
uh, all, all stocks around the world, but but U.S. stocks have sold off roughly about twenty percent. And when stocks sell off, the thinking goes, volatility rises. When SPY down, VIX up, or UVXY, an ETF that holds VIX futures up, which is um, you know like a thirty-day implied volatility uh, for the S and P five hundred. That strategy has not worked as well as some people might have thought, but I know there are very legitimate reasons. So, you know, the, the very sort of somewhat basic assumption is, hey, Zed, uh, volatility is supposed to be a hedge. I allocate a certain percentage of my portfolio to these hedges, and those hedges are supposed to do well when the stocks do poorly. Stocks have done poorly as well, but the hedges, you know, you're not getting these huge uh, sort of 2008-style returns in, in tail risk and, and the VIX. So uh, what's going on, Zed? Yeah, so, I mean, first off, when people say, you know, volatility moved or something like that, you're like, what the heck are you talking about? Because you're like, there's a litany of tenors, you know, like obviously the, the SIBO wants to make money that they literally have them like every single day for like two weeks, all the way out to, you know, two and a half years at this point in time. So you're like, there's tons of, you know, different maturities. And obviously the, you know, in the S&P 500, you can buy you know, a 500 strike put or a 6,000 strike call. So you're like, there's a litany of choices. So right, I can De- say- sorry, uh, definitely some of my audience gets this, but I just, I just want to explain that. Um, yeah. So you, you can buy options on the S&P 500 or the SPY and ETF pretty much any any days. Now they have weekly options and those weekly puts, calls, uh, puts, right to sell, a call, a right to buy. Those options have embedded implied volatility in them, which is basically how expensive they are. And the VIX references that on a average 30-day reference rate. So if today's November 8th, the VIX will be something uh, about sort of where the implied volatility is on an option that expires on December 8th. But it's it's on puts and calls. I think it's, it's, it's on a blend of strikes. And you can't buy the VIX by itself. You can't buy spot VIX in the same way you can buy spot oil or spot gold. Uh, you can only buy futures on it. So when you said that, uh, that, that's key. And also those futures are often a little bit more expensive than spot VIX. And that's why you kind of can't buy spot VIX. So uh, yeah, jump in. No, I mean, but my, my point is there's a litany of choices, like hundreds of thousands of choices <laughs> that I could use as a quote to say volatility is up, down, sideways. And guess what? Like, of course, like some of them are going to say it's down, some of them are going to say it's up, some of them are going to say it's sideways. So if you have that many choices, you can tell whatever story you want. Um, the the interesting bit, and by the way, like not to sidetrack, just for your viewers, please just ignore the VIX. <laughs> it's it's not a useful tool. It doesn't tell you what you think it's telling you. It mainly tells you the direction of the market on any given day, rather than anything to do with volatility. Why should we ignore the, like, should we the VIX, VIX Zed? Why should we ignore it? By the way, when people talk about the VIX, not, and especially on TV, 99% of the time, they're talking about the spot VIX, which again, you cannot trade. Not trade, yeah. yeah. The really, really, really fast version is, as you said, the VIX is referencing approximately 30 days out in the future, all the S&P 500 options in the chain for that date, and it's weighting them in terms of like getting the single you know, measure based on how close they are effectively to the money, like for lack of a better. Like, so the formula is like, you know, and at the money option is more weight than a 10% out of the money call or 10% of the money put, but those 10% out of the money put and call are factored in to the calculation of that number. So because there's a ton of inputs into that number, what matters is not only you know the, the change of implied volatility of a specific option, supply volatility of a lot of options, and it's a floating measure, 
meaning I think I think most people grab the concept that in general, an out-of-the-money put has a higher implied volatility than uh, you know at the market option and or an out-of-the-money call, right? So you're like, your call has a lower vol number than whatever the you know index is today, which has, you know, the, the put even has a higher number. So simplistically, what that means is if the market moves down, well, you're just referencing a, a, an option that already had a, a higher number <laughs> associated with it. So like, that's plenty of well. So like really simple, you're like a, a 28, 38, excuse me, 100 strike, that's where the S&P 100 is approximately right now, um, has an implied volatility of 25 and the, you know, whatever, 3,500 strike has an implied volatility of 30. If you go from 3,800 to 3,500, automatically you're going to move from 25 to 30. Did that tell you anything about the implied volatility of the S&P 500 options? No, but like it might say, you know, VIX is up five points. All you did is you moved down. Like the pricing of the actual options has not changed. The VIX metric might have gone up, you know, five points, but all you did is you wandered down, you know, the, the, you know whatever, about 10% of the S&P 500 to just get to the implied volatility that was already there. Um, so rather, without wasting too much time, it's just like, it's really telling you on any given day which direction the market's going and very, very little to do with the implied volatility of the actual tradable S&P 500 options. <laughs> yes. So it's quite rare where the S&P 500 will go a lot higher, like more than 1% higher, and the VIX will go up as well. In fact, when when that happens, you, you have people writing articles about like, why is this happening? The fear gauge is not working. Um, and some people say that's sort of a, a bear market indicator. I, I remember in September 2020, people were talking about the NASDAQ whale. And uh, it was a bear term in market indicator that t- turned out to be correct, but for a month or two. And then, then it was, you, you, did not, you did not want to, uh, you wanted to be long risk and, and short volatility. More interesting from your question than, you know, saying VIX, don't, don't, you know, waste too much time on it, um, is you said tail risk, tail risk. And so what, what the heck does tail risk mean? So most folks, when they think of tail risk, tends to be something along the lines of, you know, I have $100, most of that money is in, you know, long risk assets, equity, VC, real estate, whatever, long market assets. I would like something that has a payoff profile of I put a dollar in and it makes $100 when really bad things happen. And so they're not going to do a big allocation to it because they want to own all the stuff that they like, but they're like, I'll put, you know, out of my hundred dollar portfolio, I'll put one, $2 into this terrorist thing. And again, the point of it is it needs to make a ton of money when things happen. Like if your one per $1 allocation was up 50% in 2020, you're really pissed off because you're like, that's only 50 cents at a portfolio level. I don't care about that. This is supposed to make 20, 30, 50, hundred dollars. Yeah. So, that's what people think of like tail risk is, is a little bit of money in terms of their portfolio size and it explodes when the nasty event happened. What that means if you're, you know, investing on behalf of those folks in terms of allocating is you basically only have one choice uh, of, of what to buy. <laughs> you know, like there's different flavors of it, but it's essentially one choice. You have to buy extremely far out of the money options. I'm talking, you know, like, you know, one year out, so like we'll call it December 2023, like 2,000 strike puts, maybe even 1,500 strike puts. And what values those options 
is, is not really market movement. Right? It's like, you know, market up, down, you know, 300 points. The price of those options isn't really changing much based on the movement of, of the market, of spot market. Those options change if volatility explodes. So if the implied volatility of those options goes from 40 to 80, that's when you make a ton of money because it turns your dollar into 20, 30, 50, 100 bucks. So those options are specifically trying to get you know positive convexity, i.e. turn a little bit of money into a lot of money based on changes of implied volatility, not really changes in, in market. <laughs> right. So, but like when volatility, the circumstances under which volatility would spike from 40 to 80 typically are ones where you have, you know, the S&P 500 crashes 14% in a week, right? So it is kind of reliant on realized volatility going up as so, well. So, right. So the waterfall of that, all right, it's like, okay, we, we kind of know in general what they're doing. They're buying these longer dated, way, 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 way out of the money puts. So those, those puts, again, they don't really have much reactivity to like the market. It's just when does vol explode? That's when they make a ton of money. And, you know, I, I like to think about it as like, you know, most assets are, are either flows driven or fundamentals driven. And so what, what does that actually like, kind of like mean? You're like, all right, if, if I'm an event fund, you know, M&A is happening. We know a specific date that three months in the future that this deal gets done. That's like the extreme case of fundamentals. I got a price today. I know what I'm going to get in three months time. And I got a 97%, you know, expectation of it happening, like, Specific event that is 100% like, you know, fundamentally driven, not necessarily like flows driven, where like the other end of that would be, I don't know, a, a, a meme stock. <laughs> You're like, you know, is that fundamentals? You're like, no, it's like, you know, one day of tons of buyers and another day of tons of sellers. And that's what's whipping the thing all over the place. That is very, very flows, not very fundamentally driven. So these, these extremely longer dated, way, way, way out of the money options, they're very much flows driven. They're not really fundamentals driven. Like how the heck are you going to like proclaim like, a, you know, a fundamental case for the fair price of those to an extreme, you know, specific value. It's, it's when people need those options, <laughs> that's when they explode in price. It's flows. Like it's when there's, you know, forced buyers, sure, but just like a, a huge, huge demand for those types of options. That's what causes them to move. And they, and again, like they're, they're, they're not very fundamentally driven. Even after the move, it's not like there's a, a ton of folks that can naturally then sell them and do something else because the basis risk that they're going to have to endure is, is too much, especially in that type of environment. So again, it's just think flows. It's like it, what's driving the price of that type of volatility is a ton of buyers when there's very, very few natural sellers. So where do those buyers kind of like come from? You're like, well, if you're, you know, a, a, a active manager, a hedge fund, or maybe even like, you know, some mutual funds that have like a lot of discretion, something along those lines, maybe you're way, way, way over-risked and your risk manager says, hey guys, like in the shocks, if you go down, you know, 20%, market goes down 20%, we're down 30, like that seems a little extreme, like how are you going to like best accomplish that? You're like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll buy something that has a lot of convexity, maybe you'll buy those options. The problem is with those folks <laughs> for what's happened in 2022 is most active managers have been light on risk the entire year. Like, you know, they started the year like we'll call it neutral in terms of normal stance. 
but they've been selling risk all year long. Like most of the prime brokerage, you know, statements effectively for like hedge fund managers and CTAs and all this kind of stuff, essentially say that they're at the lowest net exposure. So, you know, your longs minus your shorts net is basically the lowest exposure like ever. All right. <laughs> and he, so why, if, so if people are selling risk all over the place, how come we're not having a capitulations type where everyone, I'm selling Apple, I'm selling Microsoft, I'm selling Facebook, I'm selling my oil stocks, I'm selling my gold stocks, I'm selling everything. Zed, get me out of everything. Get me out of everything. Like we, we, if, you, if people were doing that, you'd have crashes and the VIX would be at 50, but it's not. It's at 24. No, so there's two different things. So one, we'll call it, you know, active managers versus passive investments. Like that balance has shifted dramatically towards passive over the last, you know, 40 years, but pretty aggressively in the last 10, the passive guys are just always on. There's no decision. <laughs> like you're just fully invested. There are, you know, you're off and running. Active guys have discretion and they're going to be the first place where you're going to see, you know, stresses to be frank, because they have the ability to pull levers that, you know, a passive investor can't, the spy can't do anything. It just owns, you know, the whatever 486, I think it is now companies in the S&P 500. Um, so active is the first place where, you'll see action driven by, you know, mark movements or stresses that you need, but they've already been light risk. They've been light risk all year. So they don't need to buy protection. They're already light risk. Like if anything, their risk is if we scream 20% between now and your end, like that's their risk, which by the way, is a side comment. That's probably why, you know, when we've had big rallies, you've seen volatility go up. That's their risk. They have to buy calls. They don't have to buy puts. Um, so, sorry, this, this active community, active versus passive is kind of a style. And then there's different wrappers. There's like ETFs, exchange traded fund, like Kathy Woods ETF. That's an example of an actively traded ETF. A lot of ETFs are passive. Uh, then there's active mutual funds, which is kind of the traditional Peter Lynch style. Then there's active hedge funds. There are no passive hedge funds that, that I know of. Um, so what so what sort of buckets are selling the most, getting rid of the most risk versus not de-risking as much? Yeah, it's definitely your hedge funds and like CTAs are the ones that are running very light risk in comparison to their normal steady state. And they're the ones that have the most discretion, right? They're not really benchmarked. To anything specifically so they're you know have the flexibility to take much you know bigger views versus just being like yeah a a, a, a mutual fund that has discretion is probably benchmarked to the s p 500 yeah. and they'll they'll take security selection risk you know like yeah. rather than owning all 500 securities they go really heavy on the 30 that they like but their market exposure in general is pretty darn close to the S&P 500 because they're trying to beat it by, you know, 2% every year. That would be a home run. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, mutual funds are like, oh, I'm overweighting the financial sector. I'm going to own 13% financials instead of the 11.8% financials right. that's in the S&P 500. On the market. Yes. <laughs> but mutual funds, those sort of passing, if you want to, not passive, but boring uh, allocations, they are way bigger than the hedge funds that like to move their weight around. So, you know, hedge funds are only like two or 3% of the entire market, but they do, they do move in size. So you, so you're right to focus on them, but they are somewhat of a kind of a, a small player in terms of total assets under management, not flows. But. Yeah, but the, the, those ETFs and those mutual funds per their investment guidelines, most likely don't have even the ability to trade options, right? So it's like, if, if you know, it's a flows driven market that we're talking about, you got to look at the folks that one can participate in it. And then two will participate in it. And then finally, like, are they going to have any forced action? Right. And and again, if you're the hedge fund community that has obviously discretion over their investments and have the ability to trade options in general, if they're already light 
market exposure in comparison to any historical metric, their risk is not the market falling, it's the market rising. And the reason they would look to utilize options is much more likely to protect themselves from a market rally rather than a market sell-off. And so those players that have the ability to buy these options like are very unlikely right now to be buying lots of puts. <laughs> like market sells 20%. They're not panicky crap like buying puts. They, they're happy probably. <laughs> right. And so let's say rough numbers that there's a hedge fund that had a delta, a por- the portfolio of the, 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 the book they were running had a delta of, or sorry, a beta of, of 0.6. So for every dollar that S&P 500 went up, they made 60 cents. And they wanted to de-risk that to 52 cents. So they could do that in two ways in terms of doing the delta. They could just sell uh, 8 cents worth of their portfolio, or they could buy put options with that the total delta was like uh, uh, equal that, but then they'd also get the volatility exposure. So I guess why why have the hedge funds sold their risk assets instead of keeping the risk assets but buying volatility? Well, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, I I think they believe that this is a pretty well scripted problem, <laughs> and they made the decision that they didn't love any of their longs fundamentally, or lots of them fundamentally. So the easiest thing to do is just take risk off the table, like sell some of your longs. They probably bought back some of their shorts too. Like they degrossed yeah. everything. Um, but ultimately like in that metric, you know, hedge funds, I think most people think are like a 0.8 beta, sorry, 0.7 beta to the, the market. And looking at like PB statements, like they're kind of running like a 0.2 to 0.3. I mean, they're very light market risk. <laughs> wow. So yeah, prime brokerage statements is, is you're looking at this very high level. Like I, I, I have yeah. not looked at that. Um, so you're saying, yeah, normally for every dollar, the market goes up, the S&P goes up hedge funds make 70 cents and vice versa. Now they're making 20 cents. So they've de-risked substantially. Okay. That's interesting. I've, I've heard that narrative Zed, but I haven't spoke to someone who's given me like the data and, and you know, I can tell you look through the data. So yeah. And so, yeah like in, talking about terrorist hedging, like way out of the money, put options, flows driven is a pricing from that. You, you need a, a, a panicky buyer of some variety. Point is the hedge fund community, that's not where it's coming from. <laughs> like, if they're already de-risk from where you know expectations in general are, market goes down a bunch. They're not panicking buying those. <laughs> I've got a kind of a, a dumb question for you, Zed, which is yeah. if there's a head, if I'm a hedge fund manager and the market's crashing and I own a lot of risk, you're saying I would panic buy options. Why wouldn't I just panic sell? What is it about sort of convex positions that would appeal to me at that time? Because I'm assume I would probably be buying options that are somewhat expensive. Uh, relative to historical implied volatility, obviously it's justified because you know it's kind of a market crash. But yeah, yeah. So I mean, like obviously there are times where people get truly forced de-risk and they just have to you know sell their longs and buy their shorts and go towards cash. Um, but you know most you know folks have a little bit of hubris and think they're really smart and know the fair value of things. And so if you thought something was worth a hundred dollars and it was trading at sixty, you're like, I got all this edge. Market crashes, it's trading at. 30, I got even more edge. I don't want to sell that. If anything, I want to buy some more. Like I like, I know it's worth a hundred in two years time. Like once we get out of this, I have so much edge here. And so because I have so much edge, like, but I know I, I need to survive. Like I need to survive the next two years to see that edge come to fruition. How do I make sure I survive? Like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll buy these puts. And like the puts may appear super expensive. I'm spending, you know, 5% of my, you know, total account value on these puts, but 
I have so much edge in my long positions. 5% is nothing. Like I have 200% of edge now in all my positions. So I'm willing to pay, you know, whatever the price is essentially to maintain where I'm at. So like, that's kind of like the behavioral side of why like, you know, a vol guy would be like, Hey guys, like these options are really expensive. And the manager says, I don't give a shit. Like the amount of edge I have in all my longs is so extreme. Like, Go ahead and buy whatever it is to make sure I survive to like see that come to fruition. <laughs> right. So this year, the hedge fund active community has not bought nearly as much tail risk protection because they've degrossed. So they, they've sold. Well, if, anything, they've prob- if anything, they've probably been net sellers. Like, because simply you're like, I'm, I'm meant to have a market beta 0.7. I'm sitting at a 0.25. Do I want to buy equities and get it back to a 0.7 at some point in the future? Like, yeah. Like where? I don't know. Like down another 20% from here. That means they're a natural participant to actually sell <laughs> like that that volatility to other folks. Cause hey, I'm I'm you know, I'm willing to take more risk if we ever get down there. So sure. So if anything, I would say that community has probably been net. Sellers of options. That's very interesting. Zed, a few months ago, you said, yeah, volatility hasn't performed during this market sell-off and I wouldn't expect it to. We're still in phase one of the sell-off. Tell me what is phase one? What is phase two? Is, is phase two coming in December? I know you've got your eye on uh, early December. And then you know, is there a phase three? So how many acts are there in this play? Yeah, let me finish one thing on the previous point Definitely. and I'll move on nicely. So the last one is, the other place where like panicky buyers of you know extreme tail risk stuff tend to come from are banks, right? Like banks have a bunch of leverage embedded in them and like one-way risk and like when everything goes wrong at once, like they need to buy something to Make money. survive, <laughs> keep their bucks. Okay. Um, we I think it's been pretty well publicized, but you're like you know banks in the U.S. are incredibly overcapitalized. <laughs> they have. It's too much money. They don't. They can't lend it. They can't figure out what to do with it. Like if you look at the overnight window, it's trading below Fed funds. Like they're way overcapitalized. So again, you have another natural person that during a panic becomes a buyer of all that you know terrorist type of protection just to survive, and they're way overcapitalized. Today. So they're not a natural person. Even if the market were to crash another twenty percent, they're likely not there. They're totally fine. They're way overcapitalized. So your your main two. Comp- folks that from a flows driven market that will participate because they need to probably don't need to like, even if things keep on going poorly. Um, so shifting nicely into like the phases. So our expectations um, like as a firm from our you know experience and knowledge base of what's out there is essentially phase one of a drawdown. We actually expect um, volatility to fall. Now, what does that mean? I just told you there's a bajillion ways to define volatility. We're talking about something very specific. Our view of, of when I'm saying the word volatility for this conversation is, you know, longer dated, like somewhat meaty options, like a, put a number to it, say like next year, December, 2023, like, you know, live what I have in my book, like, you know, 3,300 strike puts. So like out of the money, but not super extreme, like a year out, I expect the implied volatility on those specific options to fall in the first leg down. Um, now there's, there's just tons of structured products, you know, mutual fund type products, other, you know, ETF type world products that naturally liquidate those options when the market 
falls. So if they're going to liquidate those options when the market falls, it's obviously going to put pressure on volatility to actually go down. Liquidate as in sell those options. So it means the price of those options goes down, which means the inherent implied volatility of those options goes down. What's an example of an ETF or a structure that would own those things? Uh, um, Yeah. So like, you know, a, a super like, you know, simple example would be if you had a you know, defined outcome ETF. <laughs> you're on the S&P 500, you're selling a 10% out of the money call, whatever premium you collect, you use that to buy a put, All right, That, you know, we'll call it 15% of the money. You're doing this at one year time. Market falls 20%. What do people do with those defined outcome ETFs? They probably sell them because you're like, oh, like I had it for this event. The events happen. Let's go ahead and go back to just owning S&P 500. Like I can buy it down a bunch, right? Like I don't have any exposure. I'm through my put strike. You know, that's not exactly like the price, but like that's what people think. And so if you're selling that divine outcome ETF, what does that mean? You're already long a put. Well, you got to sell the put. <laughs> like, you know, and you're going to sell S&P, but you're probably buying S&P on the other side. But the point is you're probably selling puts. And there's a lot of products in the like the vanilla space. There's a collar, put spread collar, things along those lines. That that is the reaction function. Where it goes down, you go ahead and and liquidate it to go buy something else. That puts pressure on it. There's a entire auto callable space in the structured product market that also has similar types of reaction. Just you know, without going <laughs> into auto callables because that's a too too fun one. Essentially, that they like the hedgers of auto callables own volatility to hedge their book. When things go from way out of the money to like closer to the money, their risk becomes more market movement rather than volatility. So they switch their hedge from owning volatility to basically, you know, delta hedging risk. We'll leave it there. But again, <laughs> they are become actually, you know, net sellers of volatility when the market moves. So that's why first move, there's no panic. We're just drifting lower. There's a lot of reaction function that actually creates people that, that, sell volatility. So that's our expectation for first leg. Second leg is everything's breaking, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> There's illiquidity everywhere. I don't, you know, of course, volatility is going to explode in that situation. So like, you know, the walkthrough, like real terms, like December, 2018, we were selling off, you know, 3% every single day, 20% drawdown, implied volatility on those options. Like one year, like out of the money puts fell over that month. And that's, again, it was it was orderly. Like, we yeah. hadn't gotten, we were still phase one. You know, if January 2019, like, we fell another 20%, it, it vol probably would have exploded. Like, But that's how it happened. We recovered. February, through, you know, and even the first week of March 2020, same thing. Volatility did not expand. Like, we were falling every day. We were moving a lot. It was not feeling very good out there, that phase one. Volatility on those, you know, one year out of the money S&P 500 votes, didn't move, like even through that kind of traumatic event, then we hit the illiquidity point <laughs> and it exploded. So um, it's the phase one, phase two concept is our, our expectation is for very benign, even potentially falling implied volatility in the phase one because of the market mechanics, but then phase two, you know, that's different. <laughs> right. And so, so far we've had phase one, do you think we're going to get phase two? If if so, why? And maybe more importantly, when? Um, well, two different. So so 
you know, phase two, if they were to ever happen, really need credit markets to break, right? Like that's always going to be the source of dramatic illiquidity and where leverage sits. So we haven't really had much stress there yet. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, we'll see if we actually start getting the rash of defaults, which then leads to forced unwinds and levered product in the credit space. Ultimately, I think that's that's probably like years out, like not like many, many, many years, but like 18, 24 months. Like if we keep having this pressure, then we'll start seeing defaults. <laughs> um, and and even even like, you know, mortgages, right? Like people start getting resets. Um, you know, hey, I really liked refinancing in 2020, but I chose the, you know, five-year arm because the rate was 2% rather than the 30-year fix because the rate was 3%. And I want to Pick the two percent number; it's lower, and rates stay low forever. Like when those types of resets start happening or get close to happening, that's where you can get like extreme stresses in, in credit markets. But again, that's probably a 2024, 2025 problem. But Zed, are you at all worried about the complete freezing of the primary markets, where the investment grade, uh, high yield bond markets are? You know, issuance is is down over 50% from 2021, admittedly from ridiculously bubblicious highs, but they're still down. I mean, the CLO markets pretty much to com- completely frozen, asset-backed securities, not a lot of activity going in there. Uh, I mean, uh, mortgage refinancing and, and just the mortgage origination is down. That's, that's not so much capital markets. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, we're, we're it's not, it's not great. No, it's, it's when they actually have to refinance the next time. That's the problem. And like, the answer is, because most of that refinancing, if you will, took place in 2020, 2021, like we got a little bit of time <laughs> before they have to do it again. Like it, it's all there. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, a problem waiting to happen. Like if, if things aren't great in two years time, like it will happen. Um, true. true. But, and then, you know, sorry, sorry. Just, tomorrow thing. <laughs> yeah, no, just bringing this back to our duration point when companies issued low term fixed rate debt that is not due until 2035, that is a very good protection against them because they don't have to go back to the trough. I mean, some right. maybe some do because they're you know make, losing so much money. But I'll get an example of MicroStrategy, the company that put Bitcoin on its balance sheet, is putting is buying is borrowing tons of money to buy Bitcoin, particularly buy Bitcoin at the all time highs in Bitcoin. Is that a sound fundamental strategy? Is that a recipe for financial success? No. But if you actually look at the execution, you know, and, and I have, they issued convertible debt at very low things that that. You know, not paid back until 2027. Uh, they issued, you know, bank debt uh, um, that it was actually at fixed rates, not due until 2026. Only a small portion is actually floating rate, and their maturity is not. You know, they don't have to pay the money back until 2026. So, you know, not not a uh, MSTR buy recommendation by any means. But I'm just saying <laughs> that it's just an example of uh, how companies took advantage of r- the ridiculously easy monetary conditions of 2020 and 2021. You, you can be structurally bankrupt without going bankrupt. Yeah. Like it'll eventually happen. Like if they, if conditions don't change, but like you can survive until that actual event. <laughs> so that, that like so the traditional credit markets causing mass illiquidity panic. We we just you know the whole world refinanced two years ago at really low rates, so that there's a little bit of a runway. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say on that side. What I think is interesting short term, I don't necessarily think it causes like extreme panic, um, but could definitely put pressure on asset prices is uh, essentially retirement plans in the defined contribution space. Again, 401ks, IRAs, 
Um, you, you can't sit on that money forever. There's mandatory distributions once you get to retirement age. Like, you know, and again, you know, government's constructed this because the point of them is to use them for retirement. They don't want them to only be saving vehicles for the rich to pass things on to their kids. So they force you to distribute money from those vehicles once you get to 72 half. And right out of the gate, it's about four and change percent. But once you get into your 80s, it's almost 10% per annum. Um, all right, so you're like, here's a big pot of money that is a forced seller every single year. Like that's not new this year, it's every single year. Yes, we're like older population and you know the older population tends to hold most of the wealth. So maybe it's increasing in terms of the amount of asset holders that are forced liquidators every single year. But like it's it's an every single year thing. So why is this year like more interesting? What makes it more interesting is the liquidation amount is set essentially on January 1st of the year. So January 1st, 2022. So say I'm a 82-year-old where I think it's about a 10% mandatory distribution every single year. And again, I got I got a hundred dollars on January 1st. I got a hundred dollars. That means I have to sell ten dollars sometime in 2022. First off, most of the people don't actually do it like on a monthly basis to survive. They kind of think markets go up, they stay in there, and then they get reminded at year end <laughs> that, hey, you got to sell this or else it gets taxed, you know, all the way as income. And in fact, all the custodians, your fidelities and TDs and Goldman Sachs and all this kind of stuff, they will force liquidate to the minimum distribution because it's almost a breach of fiduciary duty to not do it. <laughs> so right. they actually have the mechanics to do it. So where it becomes a problem on these types of years is again, $100 is what you had, distribution 10%. You know you have to sell $10, not 10%, $10. And your portfolio is, you know, probably if an 80-year-old, we'll call it 60, 40, 60% 40, 60% ag, 40% equity, something like those lines, yeah. slightly de risk. Both sides are down 20-ish percent year to date. So you don't have $100 anymore. You have $80. But they but still, still have to sell $10 because it was man. Okay. $10. They don't have to sell 10%. They don't have to sell $8, they have to sell $10. And so rather than liquidating 10% of their assets, they actually have to liquidate, you know, 12.5% of their assets. Like it starts feeling kind of meatier in terms of what you have to do. And again, most people don't really, really live off those, you know, retirement plans from like a month to month basis. They tend to, you know, receive the money one time throughout the year and then live, you know, then it goes to their bank account or they reinvest it if they have a lot of money. Um, but the the important mechanics of it is when you have years where both fixed income and equities fall, then the amount of the portfolio that has to be liquidated jumps pretty aggressively because it's a dollar amount that you actually have to liquidate. Combined with all the custodial environments will essentially force liquidate you before year end because it'd be basically a breach of fiduciary duty for you not to get the required minimum distribution. And when do they use custodians force liquidate you? Well, they're going to do it at close to year end. And the, we'll call it custodial world with less fantastic operations, they liquidate first. They liquidate starting, I think, like December 6th is like one of the first ones. And the reason why they do it December 6th and not December 31st is they want to have enough time to make sure they didn't screw it up. <laughs> I know how much I have to liquidate. We're going to go ahead and liquidate yeah. and then distribute the cash. And then we're going to run checks. To I like want to be 100% sure. 100% sure. 
hundred percent sure because that's like that's how I get sued. Is basically not doing it. So the the less good custodians from an operational standpoint start early. The last ones go somewhat before Christmas because they they don't want to do it the last week because liquidity gets junky, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, you create this waterfall event of forced liquidations. You know, call it between the mid first week of December and before you know Christmas. You're going to have a rolling custodial environment selling required minimum distributions. And the last time we we saw this, like that had a, like any material effect on markets was December, 2018. December, 2018, you had both fixed income sell-off and equities sell-off, not dramatically, but they're both down, which again was increasing the percent of those portfolios beyond the minimum distribution percent. So it was accelerating portfolio value that had to be liquidated by your end. And then you had the rolling every single day. Another custodian would come to market, blast market. Like next one, blast market. And that's why in December, like 2018, you kind of had that orderly, but down, you know, two to 3% every single day. And, you know, sure, Powell didn't help things, but he's like, I'm taking things through the neutral rate. Like didn't convince anybody to jump on in there. But that's also why in December, 2018, you got to, uh, you know, Christmas Eve, and then we took off <laughs> because that was the end of it. Yeah. Everybody was done with these forced distributions that were taking place throughout the month. We're done. And, you know, on the other side of it, you know, a lot of wealthy people that have 401ks, they take the minimum distribution. Do they need that money to live? Are they putting it in the bank account? No, like they want to stay invested. They go buy some stocks. <laughs> so you have you have both effects. Not only do you like force the market lower from these distributions but now people have cash and they're like oh shoot like market's down a bunch like i have this cash like i want to go buy more stuff <laughs> and sure enough they did <laughs> and from you know christmas eve through you know february it was the opposite we were up every single day as everybody was putting this capital back to work um but i do think simply because we have such a dramatic movement in both equities and fixed income for the year that these required minimum distributions are gonna have a pretty substantial effect this this December once again. Um, and you know, people, because they saw it happen so aggressively in 2018, probably will sidestep it even more aggressively, <laughs> right? Like if you know something's gonna happen, if you know somebody's gonna sell every single day and you saw how dramatically it affected markets only four years ago, you might go hands off and taking risk until you get towards the end of the month. <laughs> so you are not super excited about a Santa rally. It sounds like you think Santa will bring investors coal this summer. This, this, yeah, this, I mean, yeah, like be, be, between now and, you know, December, like who knows? Like maybe we have a, a really happy uh, Thanksgiving here, but I think there's going to be some interesting pressure from the calendar come December. <laughs> That's really interesting, Zed. You know, I name them a podcast for guys. I talk a lot about the Fed and central bank. So it's kind of like, you know, we'll gather around the campfire, talk about how, you know, Fed Chair Jay Powell, how he ruined markets in December 2018, how he saved them in January 19. It's a very Powell-centric model of the market. So it's, it's very refreshing and I think healthy for me and, and for my audience to hear just the flows base about how actually, you know, you have all these four sellers who come to market in December, these, these baby boomers, silent generation, they have to sell their assets mandated to by law. That is a mild bearish effect, even though a lot of them are wealthy, so they buy it right back. Um, I think you know, December, historically, seasonality is actually like a decent year. I think that's a month. That's why people talk about a Santa rally. But it's reflexive. The worse the year is, 
not just yeah. for, for the total thing, the more they have to sell. In a year, in 2021, when the 60-40 portfolio, I'm just going to make it up, was up 15%, they only had to send sell $10 from an $115 portfolio because it was valued at $100 at the beginning of 2021. Now that portfolio is worth oof, $80 and they have to, they have to sell, yeah, 12%, 13%. So it's, it's a reflexive loop where the worse the market does, the more that they have to sell as a percentage, just because it, it's down. That's uh, that's interesting. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's why nobody cares about this until you get these weird years where you know equity and bond correlations are one and they're both down. <laughs> yes, and yeah, equities and bonds have been selling off together. We talk about this a lot on the on the show. You know, normally stocks down, bonds will do well because the Fed's going to cut rates and deflation is coming. So, so buy bonds all across the yield curve. Now bonds and stocks have been selling off together. So that, that mix that's normally such a great pairing of stocks and bonds, it's been a pretty toxic cocktail for uh, investors to own. And baby boomers, they, they own a lot of bonds. Final thing I want to ask you is, you know, I, I want to hear about the work that you're doing at Convexitas. And I'll, I'll start by posing you a question, which is actually a problem that I encountered in, in my head before I even met you, which was, okay, the tail risk, the value, like tail risk is a absolute, on a long-term basis, it is a money losing strategy on an absolute basis because yes, you're going to make 10X during 2008 and March 2020, but long-term you're just bleeding out all of that. You're buying options that lose money. You're buying options that expire worthless. You just, it's just like, uh, you know, it's very, very bad for long-term investment. I mean, just look at, this is, I mean, a poorly intentionally done poor, poor strategy, but like look up UVXY ETF over time. You're, you're down like 99.9% of it over time uh, for, for, for the folks at home. But the value of tail risk is that you get the money, you, you, you have a, a position that's negatively correlated to the market that generates a ton of money while the market is crashing. So you get to use that cash that is being earned by those tail risks and deploy them back into the market. So you can buy the S&P 500 at 2300 uh, in March of 2020. However, and this is the thought I had, if you invest in a tail risk, you, it takes, what, 60 days, 90 days to redeem that? Uh, you're, you're not able to automatically deploy that cash. Like if, if, if I'm a tail risk manager and Zed, you give me your, your money, I, let's say I'm up 1,000% uh, in March of 2020, I'm not, you, know, you can't use the money that I generated for you. You have to, you have to ask me for it. And you know, it takes me 30, 60, 90 days. So I know there's a certain solution um, that, that you at Convexus do. So yeah, tell us about that problem and, and how uh, there's, a different, there's a different way to do things that you think is better. Yeah, so you're, you're teeing me up way too much. So <laughs> yeah, so I mean, of course we think we're good investment managers. Like we wouldn't be in the business if we thought we like, you know, we're, you know, at least as good as other good people. Um, but the, the real separator for us is, is the operational structure. So how we uh, you know, are hired by folks who invest on their behalf, and we would view it much more as like a portfolio construction tool rather than like an allocation, is essentially you hire us as an overlay manager, which just means we get access to place trades in your account. Um, and what does this mean for how we engage with your portfolio? One, you can size us to be 100% of your equity portfolio. It's not that like issue where, ah, shoot, like I have to cut a check, which means like they have to be like one, two, 3%. Nobody's going to do more than that because it's cash going elsewhere. No, you can overlay us on your entire you know, portfolio if you were to choose to. So that way you remain 100% fully invested. 
And if you believe in us, maybe even take more risk, like get rid of this fixed income and just buy more equities and VC and, you know, PE, things that over the long haul you think actually have a positive real return. So that's like step one is how we engage with folks. You can size things. Step two is we're completely unfunded, meaning your assets that you currently hold collateralize everything that we're doing. There's no cash. You don't need to reserve cash. You don't be fully invested. You don't actually require any cash day one. Your assets are collateralizing everything that we're doing. The next level of what exactly where you're drawing on is market goes down and hopefully we do our job. We're generating unencumbered cash directly into your account, meaning you have cash sitting directly in your Fidelity Schwab, Pershing, whatever account there for you to use that day. No redemption, no nothing. It's just naturally part of our, you know, rebalancing process. We're creating cash. Hopefully if we're doing our job, when the market is down, that cash is there for you to use to go ahead and redeploy during drawdown events, which ultimately is the, the, the value proposition. It's that redeployment of capital, acquiring additional assets for the long haul during drawdown events. And then like the kind of like final lever of value creation is we're a huge accelerant to tax loss harvesting. Um, tax loss harvesting, a, a, we'll call it reasonably standard procedure uh, for, for folks, especially these days, because people have built a lot of tools, so it's a lot easier to do. Issue with tax loss harvesting is twofold. One, when market just goes up for eight years, like everything has a cost basis, you know, way, way below. Their tax loss harvesting ends. Everything has gains. <laughs> um, we are truly negatively correlated. We're looking to deliver a possibly asymmetric return profile, but we are negatively correlated to equity markets. So market goes up for five straight years. We're losing money. <laughs> that Those losses can be utilized to go ahead and do traditional tax loss harvesting in your portfolio, continuously raising the cost basis of your portfolio, along with when the market goes down and we hopefully do our job and generate unencumbered cash and you take that cash and buy more things, you just created a whole litany of new tax lots. So now you have tons of different tax lots that allow you the opportunity to increase the odds of increased tax loss harvesting. If you don't have just, you know, one thing going up and down, you have lots of things going up and down, which increase the opportunity of something went up and something went down up. Oh, that's a tax loss harvesting opportunity. So, you know, the really quick, like, you know, waterfall is you can size this based on risk rather than like cutting a check allocation. We're unfunded day one. It's, it's your assets that are collateralizing everything we're doing. You get instantaneous access to any returns that we hopefully create when the market is down, allowing you to be a pretty proactive redeployer of capital during market drawdown events. And then all this stuff together, the like sneaky thing on the side is we dramatically increase a portfolio's ability to tax loss harvest over the long haul. Hmm. Yeah, that tax stuff, it gets you know more important the, the larger the portfolio we're dealing with. And Zed, tell us about the strategy that you employ. I believe it's called a diagonal. What is the exact structure? And then how is that structure attempting to take advantage of dislocations within the, the volatility uh, uh, surface? Yeah. So, you know, first off, if, if, if we're trying to create a portfolio construction tool that folks can utilize in, in that kind of means, means we can't be taking like basis risk. <laughs> now, I, I, we've talked a lot about rates. I love fixed income, like all that kind of stuff. If I came to you and said, you know, I think I have this brilliant hedge using some sort of interest rate project, you know, product for your equity portfolio. 
you might think it's interesting, but you just can't do it. It's 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 huge basis risk. Like you you can't have something you need to re- rely upon in your portfolio have tons of basis risk. So what we utilize as instruments to go ahead and deliver, you know, our our, our targeted portfolio is only S and P five hundred options. Like we don't want to be introducing basis risk. We want this to be a tool that you can rely upon for true diversification during all market environments. And because of that, step one is we're using only S&P 500 options because basically your equity portfolio looks somewhat like the S&P 500. The other piece of that is S&P 500 options are basically the most liquid market on the planet. So if you're hiring us to provide that diversification during those drawn out events, and the entire point of having that diversification is to be able to redeploy capital when the market is down, we better be able to trade it and turn that into cash in all market environments, especially the ones when things are really hairy. So we have a, a we're using a tool that we have confidence that we'll be able to liquidate it pretty darn close to fair value or what we perceive as fair value, even during the worst events. Finally, as you're kind of alluded to without getting too much of it, because this is like a two-hour conversation, is we actually see significant edge in S&P 500. Now that seems very odd. You're like the biggest, most liquid thing in the world. How the heck do you see lots of edge there? It's essentially that everybody has built structured products, the mutual funds, the ETS, even you know parametric derivative overlay products, all this kind of stuff. S&P 500 tends to be the baseline for all those. Um, and it's because it's the easiest thing to communicate. <laughs> and so you have all these persistent flows from these products that are creating, uh, we'll call it inefficiencies in the vol surface. Vol surface, again, like tons of different maturities, tons of different strikes that creates, you know, a surface and all these different products are, you know, buying really heavily at one part and selling really heavily in another part. And we're looking to extract a, a little bit of edge from those flows to construct the design of, of what we're doing. So again, we don't want to introduce basis, so we're utilizing that. We want to make sure this is most likely to be liquid during the worst possible events. And then finally, we actually see edge in, in what we're constructing. <laughs> yeah, so it's basis risk is you want to protect against event A, but you say, oh, actually, event B happens pretty much every single time event A happens. So I'll just buy insurance against event B, but event B doesn't happen. I'll give you an example. Like typically, you know, you know um, interest rate futures, uh, um, euro dollar call options, for example, betting that the market will, that, that uh, short-term interest rates will collapse, that do historically does really well during market when the S&P 500 does really poorly, like March 2020, 2008. However, this year you wanted to own euro dollar puts. You did not want to own euro dollar calls, so so you did not want to take that basis risk. And then, yeah, exactly. What's the structural flow? So you're so you're selling a longer dated S and P five hundred puts and buying shorter dated S and P five hundred puts, and and you're sort of doing the opposite of what the market's doing, like a mildly contrarian position, because there are a lot of people who buy those longer dated puts and sell the shorter dated puts. Who's selling the shorter dated puts? I know there's tons of covered call ETFs. That's like. We own the NASDAQ 100, but we sell covered calls against it, which I think the, the data shows is not the best investment strategy. But who's selling the yeah. short-dated puts? So f- first off, correlations. You don't even need to go to Asoteric product. You're like 60-40 portfolio. Everybody owns 60-40 because obviously fixed income does well when equities do poorly. And relying upon that you know, probably has not made a lot of people happy this year. It has not. Um, <laughs> but the flows side of things. 
Um, yeah, so so short shorter dated, close to the money S and P five hundred options have been, you know, we'll call it less expensive relative to other S and P five hundred options for a good like six ish years now, and the main driver of that is yield product. Like if I if I can sell a you know two month put six times that generates a potential yield. And by the way, I hate that word yield yield in this context, but it's what everybody like refers to things. But if I can sell it, you know, that at the money S&P 500 puts six times in a year, I can get a headline yield number that's a lot bigger than selling a one-year put once, right? So there's a ton of product that basically sells shorter data options a bunch of time. So they can say like, oh, the potential yield of this is a very big number. The, The other side is, the easiest option strategy for most folks to, you know, insert into their portfolio is doing covered calls. <laughs> it feels very, you know, unrisky because it's like I own a bunch of things. I'm quote unquote capping the upside in exchange for capping the upside. I'm receiving a premium that smells a lot like yield. And again, they're doing that in shorter data to get a really, really big number. And most people are doing that in index. They're selling index calls because twofold. One, like it's easier. (laughs) If I had to sell it in every single name, that's hard (laughs) from a technology perspective where I just like regress things to an S&P 500 beta and say like, ah, you know, I sell this much SPY or SPX calls against it. That's basically the market exposure that things have. And then the second side of things is, of course, people think that they have security selection edge. So you're like, if I own a bunch of these 30 names, like I don't want to sell calls on those 30 names. I own those 30 names because I think they have tons of upside, but like I can sell market exposure against that. So those, those two things, again, cause a ton of covered call selling. And let's <laughs> just say that the back testing for covered calls is not good. Yeah, it was good for, you know, a period. And then everybody got the back test and started doing it. And then it wasn't yeah. that good. Can, can we folks at home compare a uh, NASDAQ <laughs> ETF to a NASDAQ covered call ETF and uh, does not make the, the covered call strategy look that nice. I'll just, I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people do that. And basically relative to the rest of the choices, um, it makes shorter dated, close to the money, S&P 500 options, cheap relative. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, well Zed, we, we've been going on for, for 90 minutes. It's been a pleasure getting the chance to pick your brain. You, you really know your stuff. People want to find out more about you, about Convexitas. Where can they go? Uh, just our website, www.convexitas.com. And, uh, you know, hopefully there's, uh, you know, some interesting things in our insight page where you can hear what we did in 90 minutes, just in a three minute read. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, Zed. Talk soon. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, You can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. Uh, It's Podbean as in on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.